0: This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. When last we spoke, we were recovering from an ice storm here in the bluegrass. Now we have spring, sunny, warmer days, sometimes still punctuated with a frosty morning. My bulbs, with which I have so long bored you, have sent their beautiful shoots out of the soil to brighten the not-yet-green lawn and beds. Shoots are still coming up, many yet to blossom, so I'm playing a bit of a guessing game as to what is what. I'm also planning what needs to be planted this coming fall to fill in the gaps. Certainly more hyacinths, certainly more winter aconites, always crocuses, And I think some more snowdrops, too. There are always more bulbs to be planted. You've heard me tease the Cultural Debris Genoa trip. Well, now is the time to contact me about details. The trip is planned for the week of October 22nd through 29th. And due to early commitments and interest, we may be able to add a second group the following week. We will explore Genoa together, experiencing the cultural debris of the city, dine together in the evenings, and discuss the day's activities along with some light readings. It's going to be a wonderful trip, so please do email me at culturaldebrispodcast@gmail.com at for full details. I recently had the chance to attend the Ciceronian Society Conference in Grove City, Pennsylvania. I spoke on the Austrian artist, typographer, and printer, Victor Hammer, who eventually ended up in Lexington, Kentucky, where he spent his last years. I'll certainly have to do a Cultural Debris episode on him sometime. Our poem is called Spring and is by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Nothing is so beautiful as spring, when weeds and wheels shoot long and lovely and lush. Thrush's eggs look little low heavens, and thrush through the echoing timber does so rinse and ring the ear. It strikes like lightnings to hear him sing. The glassy pear-tree leaves and blooms. They brush the descending blue. That blue is all in a rush with richness. The racing lambs, too, have fair their fling. What is all this juice and all this joy? A strain of the earth's sweet being in the beginning in Eden garden have get before it cloy before it cloud christ lord and sour with sinning innocent mind and mayday and girl and boy most o maid's child thy choice and worthy the winning i haven't mentioned the cultural degree patreon in a while and I appreciate very much those who are faithfully supporting the podcast. If you find enjoyment and intellectual stimulation from the podcast, I would encourage you to visit patreon.com culturaldebris and consider pledging a few dollars to help keep the podcast lights on. My guest this episode is Alan Mendenhall, Associate Dean and Grady Rosier Professor in the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, and author of the book Shouting Softly, Lines on Law, Literature, and Culture from St. Augustine's Press. We discuss his family's connection to author Harper Lee, Russell Kirk's book The Conservative Constitution, The Value of Being a Generalist, and much more. Alan even practices law on me during the interview, which is what I get for inviting a lawyer on the podcast. Join me now as I talk with Alan Mindenhall. Welcome to Cultural Debris. Well, thank you for having me. You uh, were telling me before I hit record about the the lovely warm weather down in Alabama right now, so that makes me a little bit jealous uh, (laughs) because we're not not quite out of the uh, especially cool nights and cool mornings yet here in Kentucky.
1: Well, it's certainly really pleasant right now. It's about 79, 78 degrees and it's 10 in the morning here on March 4th. And so that's really nice, really nice weather for this time of year. I think every year about the first or second weekend of March, this year it'll be the second weekend of March, I make a trip to New Orleans and uh, it's for a Federal Society event. But I always enjoy that weekend because it's the first time when I really feel spring and just traveling that five hours or so to New Orleans, just a little bit farther south is enough to, to make you feel the uh, rejuvenation, let's say of the new season. And I always love this time of year.
0: Well, I'll say a couple of things. One is having spent about seven summers in Alabama uh, in my life, I, I will say I I might be willing to trade the cooler spring for, to avoid the, the heat of the Alabama summer.
1: Uh. <laughs> you see, I love it though. I love the hot summer. I'll go out in my seersucker suit and just sweat until my collars are all stained yellow. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I do appreciate that you wear a seersucker suit. There, there aren't too many of us left out there who do it. But I,
1: uh, <laughs> oh, I've got uh, them. I've got them in lime green, orange, tan, blue. I've, I've got. I've them in all all patterns. All, well, well, not I, patterns, but colors.
0: Yeah. Well, I absolutely endorse the seersucker suit, and uh, and of course you're a bow tie man, as I am, and so um, although I think you may be a little bit more of a, a faithful adherent than I am these days, but. Uh, <laughs> But I always like to see a, a bow tie individual. But I will also tell you that you, that you've really not experienced spring until you come to Lexington and go to the Spring April Keenland meet uh, here in Lexington and watch the horses run. Then you'll oh, yeah. then you'll really know uh, then you really know what spring's supposed to be like. So so you need to come up and we'll uh, we'll go watch the ponies run some some uh, April and and uh, and get a feel for that.
1: Well, that is, that is an oral contract that you just established on record. So I can hold you to it, but we, we do that's, have our uh, derby parties down here with all the bourbon and the, the wild colors and stuff and the fancy hats. And that's always fun, but I've never experienced the real thing.
0: Well, you, you definitely need to come up here. And this was the danger of me having an attorney, um, on the podcast <laughs> is that, uh, I, I, by the time, you know, I, you may have, um, you may have all my future, uh, uh rights and inheritances <laughs> locked down by the time this podcast is over. <laughs> you are, you are an attorney. You're also, uh, also have a, a PhD in English. Uh, so is it possible to, uh, to be an attorney and, uh, and someone interested in literary affairs these days? That's a, a rare combination that we see, uh, now.
1: Well, it's certainly possible, but it's more difficult than it used to be. I wrote an essay in my uh, my book of Bees and Boys about, uh, about reading and how difficult it is to read uh, uh, in light of the limited time that we have. And attorneys have to bill so many hours, those who are in private practice, and there's just not enough time to do the type of reading you need to do to live a fulfilling life. And so that was one thing that motivated me first to, uh, to get into higher education and uh, have a lifestyle where I could explore ideas and read more fully and deeply. And it's been a rewarding decision. Uh, now that I'm in administration, I find myself uh, crunched for time once again, but uh, I always try to carve out as much space as possible to do as much reading as possible because, you know, without reading, your only knowledge is derived from present experience and the things you see or hear or taste or touch, but that's, that's experience that lacks context. And, you know, you need, you need to read in order to, um, more deeply understand the perennial features of the human condition.
0: Well, that raises another question, of course, which is, is it easier to be a, a literary lawyer or a
1: literary higher education administrator, which is... <laughs> you know, that is a good question. I sort of I sort of think it may have been the lawyer because when, when I was doing the law stuff, I was having to do a lot of writing and researching just for day-to-day legal purposes. And it didn't matter if I was handling a sort of -of matter-of-fact case about HOA law, there was always some research to do, and that process of ferreting out details and exploring and figuring out things you don't know lends itself to, you know, imaginative exercises, and, you know, you find yourself coming up with a story, or I should make a short story out of that, or linking it to some uh, novel you had read, or some... Uh, experience you had had as a child that inspires you to write a poem. And uh, I do think that the law and literature are paired enterprises in some ways. But uh, university administration is a little different because it's a lot of email, a lot of meetings, a lot of phone calls. And uh, that can be uh, soul sucking after a while.
0: Oh uh, no! No question about that. But you uh, you have found the time to to write essays that you've collected together in this new book, "Shouting Softly: Lines on Law, Literature, and Culture," and you you really do cover a wide range of topics. And and one of the things that that impressed me um, as I was working my way through it is how you really do. It, uh, Bring together disparate topics and authors um, in what I would guess I, we would call a, an interdisciplinary approach in a in a way that that really gives I think breathes life into into that into that idea.
1: Well, thank you. I uh, I sort of resist specialization. I've always thought it's better to know a little about a lot than a lot about a little and that uh, hyper-specialization can close the mind to alternative possibilities and can cause us to see the whole world through the limited circumstances of some narrow focus. And plus, I think just curiosity brings me to do different things. Uh, I, I always sort of hated how the process of writing a dissertation or, you know, getting your PhD forced you into some limited area of specialization, or then, you know, going on the tenure track, you're having to uh, demonstrate mastery of some hyper-specialized area, and for me, you know, maybe it's maybe it's a, a, a some type of attention deficit disorder or something. But I <laughs> I, I, I I like to uh, you know explore different things. You know, I I might read a book about the ancient Greeks one day, and then read about twentieth century modern American poetry on the next day. You know, I just I, I like to go to bookstores browse the shelves and pick out whatever appeals to me at the moment. And it could be, I mean, it could be anything from Kingsley Amos to Ludwig von Mises. You just never know. Well,
0: I do appreciate that because that's, um, I I have, I have the same affliction, I'm afraid. I I really (laughs) do. I really do think that um, that society as a whole, especially, especially academia does suffer from, uh, hyper specialization that there's just not uh, people people get in their little their little walled gardens and they don't appreciate w- how other fields can inform their thinking and and make those kinds of connections that that I see a lot in in your writing. but uh, it, it is difficult though in our modern society to, I guess to be successful and be a generalist. Uh, I think that there is extraordinarily value, uh, extraordinary value in it, but I don't think that society or academia values it. I, if that if that makes sense. No, there's
1: no doubt that that higher education and academia will not value the generalist. That is absolutely true. But it's also uh, a shame. You know, I I, I remember. Uh, recently reviewing uh, an old Richard Reaver book and how adamant he was to remain a generalist. And he he insisted on being a generalist and thought it was sort of crass not to be. (laughs) Right. And that's that's sort of a lost that's sort of a lost um, position to hold. Well, you know, you you
0: look at at writers that you and I appreciate. Uh, you talk about some in your book, like Russell Kirk or or Emmy Bradford Weaver's another one. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those guys were, I mean, they had their specialties, but they were generalists. They drew from such wide ranging uh, areas and brought those things together and their gift was maybe was seeing connections where other people didn't see connections and and making those points. And I think that that's, um, that that's something we do really miss these days.
1: And I agree.
0: Well, I, I've got all kinds of things I want to talk to you about. Uh, but one of the things that I mentioned to you, uh, before we got started was uh, that I, I don't think I've, I've ever had, um, Somebody on the podcast, and and by the way, I will say, cultural debris is very much a generalist podcast. So anybody who <laughs> looks at the at the guest at the guest list will see that. Um, but I've never had anybody on the podcast with a family connection. To Harper Lee, so I feel like we've we've got to start there because you're a sure you're an Alabama man, and uh, I'd love to hear about uh, I believe it's your grandfather who knew her and uh, and that and and tell us some about that connection.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, my grandfather passed away in 2013, but he was born in Atmore, Alabama, and the doctor delivered him for free because his family didn't have uh, any money to pay him. But he grew up in Monroeville, which is, of course, where uh, Harper Lee grew up. And uh, and I remember my grandfather, I called him Papa, telling me stories about uh, Lee and Truman Capote and how uh, he would say that that Harper Lee was a tomboy who wouldn't wear dresses and was always in trouble. And she would show up on the grass basketball court in his backyard and, and play with the boys and. And he had sort of mixed feelings about uh, Truman Capote. He would call him a weird boy, but you could tell he was proud of the fact that, that he had this connection to Truman Capote, even though culturally they were very different people. Uh, when I was, gosh, in college, he would he was my, fa- uh, my uh, grandfather, would go and give lectures at the local high school that I went to. And he would lecture in my cousin's classrooms and he would talk about Uh, Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird and specify the different residents on whom Lee had based the characters. And my grandmother used to tell him, you're going to get sued one day by somebody. And and he would just laugh it off and he'd he'd never get sued. But I recall when I came back from Japan, so when I graduated from college, I moved to Japan and taught English over there. And when I came back before I went to law school, I uh, sat with him at his kitchen table and just went through different stories about, uh, Harper Lee and Truman Capote. And he gave me on a piece of paper, which I still have, uh, somewhere it's in a, actually I know where it is. It's in a, in a drawer, but, uh, he drew out a list of the different Monroe villains and their corresponding characters from, from the novel, at least according to him. And it would be Scout Finch equals Harper Lee or Dill Harris equals Truman Capote Atticus equals AC Lee, who's, uh, Harper's father, Boo Radley equals Sun um, and so on. And he said Tom Robinson was uh, a purely fictional character. Um, but uh, then he drew a map, and he would say, "You know, here's the courthouse, here's the post office, and here are some homes." And he would label, "And this is my home. This is my grandmother's home. This is Falk's home." And and it went on like that. And you know, it was it was sort of a remarkable thing. To me at the time, having been raised outside of Atlanta, now that I live in Alabama, I realize that there are just dozens and dozens of people who have this experience and have relatives who claim to have connections to Harper Lee and everybody wants to claim Harper Lee. And while she was living, she wanted to claim nobody. (laughs)
0: She
1: she was very reclusive and uh, didn't like the limelight and she wouldn't have known me from Adam, although I felt as though I knew her just from my grandfather's stories. I think he and my grandmother had had coffee or tea or something with her a few years before she passed away, and they were driving through uh, Monroeville en route to maybe the beach or something. I don't know why they were were in Monroeville at the time, other than they did go every year to plant uh, flowers and tend to Uh, his parents' graves. So my great-grandparents' graves. And now my uncle has taken up that routine, even though he lives in Atlanta. Once a year, he goes down there and and does that to sort of honor uh, my grandfather and and that tradition. And they always come back with boxes full of satsumas, which are big in that part of the state. Uh, So anyway, I've always felt a special connection to that novel. I used to read it every year, uh, when I was very young, of course, I, I watched the, the old black and white film with Gregory Peck. And in my mind, Gregory Peck and Atticus Finch are the same person. I almost can't watch other Gregory Peck films because it, <laughs> right. it, it feels strange to see him in another role.
0: Right. He's become so identified with that. And, and certainly if you, if you had that connection, I, I would understand why it would be even intensified.
1: Yeah, 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 and you know it was a, a film that we would watch at the beach. My, my grandparents had a beach house down in Santa Rosa Beach, which is just outside of Destin. Now it's just you know grown up in ways that you could never have imagined then. It's very commercialized now and uh, very trafficked. When back then it was isolated. Santa Rosa Beach was was in the boonies, and you could get homes for cheap back then. And we would go out to the beach and basically be the only family out there. And then we'd come in for lunch and have sandwiches or something. And then we would do a couple hours of watching movies and it would be gone with the wind or how, you know, how to catch a thief or to catch a thief, excuse me, or, you know, all kinds of different classical films that they would have, uh, on their, uh, I guess it was a bookshelf, but they had films and books on the bookshelf.
0: So, did he think that the novel and the movie portrayed that that place and time in an accurate way? What was what was his opinion of it? Obviously, he he had some uh, affinity for it since he he spent so much time talking about it. But uh, what 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 did he think she got right, and what did he think that she got wrong?
1: Well, you know, it's hard to get into the nitty gritty details about it. But you know, for example, Edwin Lee was known as Jim. And he, he, in the, in the novel, he was Jim and Ed went to Auburn. And that was a significant fact to anyone in my family. I live in Auburn, even though I work at Troy, I have an office in Montgomery and an office in Troy, which means I'm either commuting in an hour and a half or an hour, but I have a very old, old Auburn family history, and we can save that story for another time. But, uh, But it was always significant that that Edwin Lee attended Auburn for my grandfather. And then at Coleman Lee, A.C. Lee, that was uh, Harper Lee's father. Um, He was a lawyer in Alabama. And my grandfather would remember funny things about him. Like he he, he heard him speak many times, but he remembered the fact that he would rattle chains and, uh, excuse me, uh, change coins in his pocket while he talked. And uh, you know they're just little things like that. The 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 Yule's, the family that uh, you know that was the the poor white white trash family. Um, that that was a somewhat accurate depiction, according to my grandfather. But now I've heard other people who have connections to the story say different things. And I've heard, oh well, I know you know some. Some descendants from that family, and they they're they're not pleased about that sort of representation not, of the I'm family.
0: Sure
1: <laughs> <be>. <laughs> so you know, it's hard to say. You know, the book is obviously not meant for verisimilitude, and um, and there's certainly some imaginative distance, and especially after Harper Lee's uh, uh, second second book ghost set a watchman came out you get a totally different representation of atticus i actually have argued that it's not a different representation right that the yeah. two Atticus's are 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 similar figures but it's hard for a modern audience to really appreciate how the atticus that represents tom robinson could also be this atticus that attends like a white citizens council meeting but for those of us that um grew up in the South and were raised in the South and know those older generations, we can see how, you know, there are multifaceted dimensions to human beings and how people can hold many different things in tension and still be good people, even if they hold problematic views.
0: Well, Atticus has become such, uh, and became such a, uh, an idealized figure, I think that, um, it was really maybe beyond i think certainly beyond what even harper lee had intended mm-hmm. and of course i you're you would be more well versed on this than than i would be certainly but uh you know it's it's being written uh from a child's perspective of her father and those those, right. those visions are always going to be idealized absolutely um, and, uh, and I think that the the perspective of that has to be kept in mind in the portrayal of Atticus and so forth but um but that's you know that's an extraordinary family connection no wonder no wonder it's it was something that um, and I think you mentioned in in the uh, in the essay that it was something that that drew you to the law uh yourself
1: it was yeah you know I Growing up, I, I went through phases when I was very studious and phases when I wasn't very studious, but I always loved to read. That was very important to me, and I enjoyed sort of opening text and jumping into some different world and escaping mine for a little bit. But uh, that didn't necessarily mean I was always, you know, getting good grades in school. I never liked math very much, for example, but uh, but when I was in middle school, I went through a phase and it probably lasted a year, maybe more than a year where I was really thinking about my future and whether I was going to play golf on a college scholarship or what I was going to be. And I really uh, wanted to be a lawyer. The idea appealed to me. I liked sort of the reputation that lawyers had in the community. I liked the respect that they were given. I liked that they were studious and proper, at least in my Mind at that time. I've since been disabused of some of those notions as an adult having (laughs) been in the field of law and the practice of law and seen a lot of lawyers. But uh, here in Alabama, I, I find the legal community is still very much that way. You know, you can go to the ends of court and and find ladies and gentlemen and talking about uh, their cases in very polite ways. And uh, it is a little bit more old school than it was practicing in Atlanta in private practice where I was just billing hours all the time and uh, couldn't get away from phone calls or emails. But, but yeah, I, uh, I think, you know, the Harper Lee and, 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 uh, and Atticus Finch were both, influences on me and both at some level helped me to choose to be a lawyer, even if I'm not a lawyer in any conventional sense anymore. Now that I'm a university administrator, I still uh, I still do some things in the law. For example, I'm, I'm assisting with an amicus brief over in the second circuit, and I am very involved in the state bar and in different uh, legal organizations. I run the Montgomery chapter of the Federal Society here in Alabama, but I'm not practicing in any conventional way. I sit on the board of uh, the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty and and do a lot of advising on the cases that they take or don't take, and uh, and I try to stay involved in in some ways. But you can only you can only do so much when there's only so much time.
0: Well, you've already practiced law on this episode, so um, (laughs) so, you know you're 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 staying pretty you're staying pretty active. Well, I I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, you know someone that that my uh, that that this podcast is certainly uh, interested in, as am I, and those those are connected, obviously. But and that that's your essay uh, remembering or remember Russell Kirk, um, yeah. That um, and you're you're specifically. Uh, interestingly enough, writing that in in a legal context, or particularly a constitutional context, mm-hmm. um, look, at the beginning of the book, the, the first section of the book deals with sort of legal type issues, and you conclude that section with this essay, Remember Russell Kirk. And uh, uh, particularly referencing his book, the The Conservative Constitution, uh, which came out uh, around 1990 or so, uh, and what what is it that we should remember about Russell Kirk as far as the law goes, and as far as his understanding of the Constitution goes?
1: Well, so Kirk, if, recalling his canons of conservatism, which I'm going to sort of imperfectly remember here, but he talks about you know believing in a transcendent order. He talks about Diversity and variety and mystery and private property rights and custom and that sort of thing. I find Kirk to be a very nomocratic thinker, and I think nomocracy is is an idea that's very important to me in these essays. And again, this this book is something of miscellany. It's a it's a collection of different writings that I'd publish at different times. In fact, when I submitted the book to the to the publisher. I suggested that they publish it as the collected writings of Alan Mendenhall. And they wrote back and they said, eh, we like this, but you're not famous enough for the collected <laughs> writings. So why don't you go in and try to synthesize this? It looks like they're thematically linked and you've got law in one theme and literature in another and culture in another. So why don't you divide them that way and see if you can synthesize the chapters on law and then. Uh, Hooked together in some way, the chapters on literature and culture. So I did, and it took me a lot longer than I had intended it to take. In fact, the book was due in August of whatever the year the pandemic was, twenty twenty, and I didn't get it to the publisher's hands until August of twenty twenty one. So it was a full year late, and thankfully, um, the tardiness didn't affect my contract with the publisher. They still agreed to go forward with the publishing, but. Kirk seems to me to be a nomocratic figure and what I mean by that is the word nomos comes from the ancient Greek concept of law as derived from convention or custom or consensus and the features of nomocratic jurisprudence are that it is uh, bottom-up rulemaking and standards it involves spontaneous order it involves the decentralization diffusion and dispersal of power it involves emergent processes um, nomocratic Jurisprudence is very much in keeping with the common law tradition, which the common law system is organic and natural, and it, if it, it, uh, it incorporates custom and tradition. It's all about situated and embedded norms and nested mores and restraints on power, dividing power. It's uh, historical and local rather than ahistorical and centralized. And uh, I think most importantly of all is that nomocratic jurisprudence is uh, opposed to sort of abstraction in the sense that uh, we think of like sort of a teleological abstraction. It's going to be more rooted in concrete facts. So I think one reason why Kirk is very helpful in this no democratic jurisprudence is Kirk's a Catholic, right? So he's, he's going to believe in natural law and he's going to adhere to natural law, but natural law theories, I mean, there are almost an infinite variety of natural law theories first of all but some tendencies in these natural law theories are to get very teleological to treat laws if it worked inexorably towards some ideal end state or final cause that conforms with pure reason um, but uh, I think the kirkian perspective and I I don't know that I get into all of this in that essay to be honest it's been a while since i've i've even read the essay that is that's in here but uh, i recall a lot about the unwritten constitution that 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 was discussed in there and um and uh talking about not freeing the individual from historical or social convention and that sort of thing but uh i i would say that you know kirk's position on natural law which is maybe me reading my own views of it into kirk but is that natural law sort of revealed through historical analysis And it's only ever imperfectly known because of the complexities and messiness of human experience and human fallibility. Like we, each of us uh, has limited knowledge and we are uh, restrained by our own personal perspective. And so we have to rely to some degree on custom and convention. Uh, There was an essay that Kirk wrote on uh, conservatism that was sort of a response to Hayek's essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative. And and in that essay, if, if I recall correctly, Kirk talks about how, look, you can't learn everything over from scratch. At a certain point, you've got to take some things on faith. And he says, for example, like some mathematical theorem, I don't need to sit here and undo it and go all the way back to the beginning and, uh, prove that two plus two equals four, you know, I just know that everyone's told me two plus two equals four. I mean, that's a really simplistic example. I think he was talking about probably some more complex form of mathematics than that. But he said at a certain point, I just have to trust that, you know, the basis for my belief in the fact that this mathematical equation equals what people say it does is that I have to take on faith. I don't have to undo all of modern science and reassemble it because it takes too long and you'd spend an entire lifetime doing it and then you couldn't live. So we all, whether we like it or not, adhere to custom and convention because we inherit all kinds of knowledge that we use in our day-to-day activity without even thinking of it. In that way, that we're just uh, participating in some sphere in which knowledge has been deposited, and we're all working within the sum of knowledge, although we don't have but very limited access to small pieces of that sum. So, uh, you know, I think Kirk's Kirk's disdain for utopianism and for ideology really uh, uh, appeals to me, and. I would put, you know, it's interesting that, that I mentioned Hayek earlier is Hayek and Kirk had that little disagreement, but I actually put them in, in sort of the same category. I can't think of people who have influenced me more than both Hayek and Kirk, but then you throw in people like Hume and Burke and C.S. Purse and Oakeshott and Eleanor Ostrom, and you start to get a sense of where it is I'm coming from. It's a very unusual array of thinkers who have influenced me the most, but, uh, I think that it has something to do with this sort of bottom-up emergent process of understanding things. And I think it, it has to do with, you know, predicating thought on humility and really realizing how little we know and uh, how weak our capacity to know really is.
0: Well, I, I think that, that that really is in a lot of ways keeping with, with Kirk's own thinking, which which was drawn uh, in, you know, you look at the conservative mind at the just the wide range of of disparate thinkers mm-hmm. that he draws from and that he that he puts together there, and of course, that's always been um, a criticism that some have leveled against the conservative mind. You know how how could Kirk, you know, possibly think these people? And I think you you actually mention. Um, in your review that you have in here as well of, of, of Brad Berzer's, uh, biography of Kirk, uh, you know, that, that seemingly contradictory figures may play a role, but what Kirk is doing is seeing within them this consistency of, that, that they have apprehended a truth, and they have apprehended an idea, and it may not be the totality of what they think, or even how they think, but but that they have grasped this truth, and that sort of goes along with with your idea there of of uh, of nomocracy and and of of um, sort of the the traditionally developed rights of common law, which is is very much how he understood uh, you know American American rights, not that they were. Uh, abstractly revealed in the Bill of Rights, but rather the Bill of right. Rights was simply a statement of the developed rights of Englishmen over the over the period of centuries. That's a hard sell even to a lot of people who identify themselves with, conser- with as conservatives today because they've they've been taught to think abstractly about those things. and And Kirk, uh, and I think your idea uh, of nomocracy is an antidote a needed antidote to that because we we do get ourselves into trouble anytime we embrace that kind of abstract thinking i think
1: yeah no i think that's exactly right and i think looking at the founding as just the next step in the evolution that began you know long long ago but in the english tradition you've got magna carta you've got the bill of rights you've got the petition of rights you know you've got all kinds of of uh of of antecedents, including like Locke's second treatise. And, and, uh, you know, we, we are still working through what the extension of this tradition looks like, you know, despite the efforts of progressivism and, uh, whatever else is at play in our current environment, you know, we're still dealing with, uh, fundamental issues of federalism and, uh, what it means to operate within a common law system. I mean, the, the, the world's roughly divided into common law and civil law systems. And even the civil law systems are borrowing from common law in the sense that judges, while not bound to follow precedent, are they tend to do it because it gives them some cover. And uh, you see that even in civil law systems, the, uh, the, the judicial hermeneutics look a lot like they do in the common law system. You're listening to the Cultural Debris podcast.
0: You know we've we've seen, um, I guess at least at least since the '80s, maybe before, uh, conservatism, American conservatism, very much focusing on the idea of originalism. Mm-hmm. Um, Kirk's what Kirk is expressing here, and what you're talking about in your essay, isn't really. That kind of strict originalism, but it's but it's saying judges need to take the Constitution, which he he defines really more in an Engl- a, a traditional English sense, mm-hmm. uh, rather than simply this written document. He might say the written document that we call the Constitution is itself simply part of the Constitution, right? Right, um, and that the. Uh, that judges ought to take those things into account. And we've kind of seen maybe over the past 30, 40 years a, um, I guess more like 40, 50 years, this strong embrace on the, uh, from, from conservatives and uh, the, the judicial right, this, this strong embrace of literalism and originalism that really may not may not be, the best approach. It's not. It's it's a maybe a tool in the toolbox, but not uh, but not itself the the end goal.
1: Well, so the organic common law system developed before we had written constitutions, and you know the constitution provides this general framework within which these rules and principles operate with some degree of play. And I do think originalism and textualism both provide limiting principles that prevent you know, progressives from pulling things out of the air and vending, you know, sure. We, we had, you know, through the, the corporation doctrine under the 14th amendment, we, you know, uh, we've had things occur that make a lot of sense, you know, like, oh, well, we should allow, there's a fundamental right to marry who you want and people should be able to marry people of different races and things like that. Absolutely. But uh, there are things that get totally invented out of whole cloth, like the the notion that there would be a right of basic basic subsistence that you know the government ought to be able to provide everybody with housing or whatever. Um, you know, these are new rights that are getting discovered—a right to this, a right to that—and all of a sudden you're thinking, well, what what does it mean to even have a right? What are rights if 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 you have rights to things that are now uh, in some degree, if not other people's property, but at least implicating other people's property or affecting other people's property arrangement, then what does it mean to have private property rights if if you also have other rights that come in conflict? What does it mean to say you have a right to this or a right to that when uh, somebody else's alleged right is completely incompatible with it? You know, American federalism is complex. I mean, the Constitution limits the federal government to certain powers. Yet the courts always struggle to set the practical parameters and scope of those powers. And especially today, after the rise of the administrative state, we have federal agencies aggressively intruding on state prerogatives. Uh, the federal footprint continues to grow. State prominence diminishes. And as all this happens, there's just an increased cynicism about the founding and about principles of limited government. I've been working with a, uh, a task force and this is a little bit of a digression but uh, I am not a policy wonk however sometimes I get pulled into things that uh, are interesting and uh, I'm working with this task force on something called consent procedures and this is related in somewhat to the commandeering doctrine but you know neither the constitution nor the state constitutions contemplated federal to state grant relationships so the federal government gives all these grants to states through these executive agencies and the federal government uses numerous procedural advices as anti-federalism weapons. And I don't mean that in the sense of like the anti-federalists, I mean, as like opposed to federalism, right? Uh, to disaggregate state government to ensure the acceptance of the grant and the intended policy strings. So they put all these policy strings on there and they say, you know, in order for you to accept this money, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, these states aren't going to turn down all this federal largesse. They're going to they're sure. going to accept it. And the more onerous the policy strings, the greater the use of these consent procedures, which are all the things that are in the federal, uh, on the federal side that they're requiring of the state, that these states have to do this in order to set, to accept the grant. Just as a for example, uh, the Forto, the Affordable Care Act um, threatened to withdraw state Medicare funding to states that refused to comply with the legislation's Medicare expansion. Um, there are other things like that in the 2009 stimulus bill and, and, even in, and even in some of this COVID stuff. But at any rate, the long and short of it is that the use of these consent procedures is an affront to state sovereignty and a great cause of citizen frustration. And I do think that uh, you know we're a long way from sort of the 19th century America that de Tocqueville wrote about with all the uh, community and associational life. When we had, uh, you know, we had mutual aid societies instead of, you know, government welfare programs, and uh, you know, when when de Tocqueville observed the energetic character of American associations in the 19th century, ideas and debates circulated in public squares, and civic organizations, and clubs, and mutual aid societies, and schools, and so on. Um, but the growth of the internet and the rise of the administrative state have just changed our interactions. I think we have. Anonymity and virtual spaces—that's led to vilification and mob psychology and alienation—and uh, you know, I, I feel as if a lot of the technology, which you know, you and I use, we we both tweet, we we do all sure. these things, we're on Facebook, we're on social media, but you know, there is a little bit of a depersonalization and dehumanization that that, that goes on, you know, especially as you know, people shriek and squeal and bully and harass each other rather than pursuing attention and, uh, excuse me, pursuing, uh, clarity and understanding. Um,
0: yeah, I, th- I think social media, um, is something of a, of a two-edged sword. I, I think that all yeah. the things that you describe are, are absolutely, uh, true about social media and, and our outgrowths of it. At the same time, I think that there are benefits to it. Um, if, if one is willing to use it (laughs) mindfully, um, that you can connect with people, uh, who have, who share a similar mindset and outlook that you otherwise would not have been able to. I mean, I think that there is, that there is validity, um, to an idea of virtual community. Obviously there are limitations on how far that can go. Um, but, I think that there's value to it. I think that it can be taken in positive uh and beneficial way. I know that I've made a lot of connections uh through social media that have turned into actual real life personal connections well, of people that no I have doubt. met in the flesh and so well say, you and I have well, met I was going to say <laughs> I'm not sure have we, we
1: have we met in person surely we have we right?
0: we yeah we did at the uh at the Kirk center uh, I well I think at the ISI conference in Atlanta a few years ago okay uh I believe we met there so um but you know, most of our interactions have been, you know, disembodied. I guess right. on, virtual on, on, and digital, online. and yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, the, so so it it is difficult. Um, I, I think to to balance a lot of those things. Let let me ask you uh, about this, uh, in talking about uh, sort of this development of uh, or sort of Kirk's idea of of understanding. Uh, constitutionalism maybe in a broader sense. Okay. Uh what it, what are your thoughts about um the the rise of influence of of the integralists and I know um Harvard professor uh, Adrian Vermeule has a new book uh out on uh common good constitutionalism. Mm-hmm. How do you see those ideas and I and and I've not read the book. I I couldn't necessarily give you a fully coherent explanation of even of everything that they're implying with that, but it, it is an outgrowth of, and kind of an answer to is my understanding of, of a of sort of strict originalism. There seems to be some ways in which maybe the Kirkian view might be compatible with that common good view. Uh, what, what are your, you, I, I'm deferring to you on this to, to know more about it than me because I'm sure you do. <laughs>
1: well, I, 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 I may not, but, uh, you know I, I i think there is uh, there's a difficulty in thinking that you know there can be this marriage of civil society the state and 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 sort of the church at, at at the moment we we live in um and you know i know that there are these debates going on about the common good and there's a, a guy named kevin vallier i think he's at uh i believe he's at bowling green or maybe ball state he's either bowling he's either at ball state or bowling green i can't remember which which university he's at and he and Vermeule go back and forth on on twitter to a, a large degree and this is frankly it's not something that that i have um, followed all that closely i sort of removed myself from 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 this Process. I know when I, uh, I when Deneen's book came out a few years ago, I reviewed it, and I was pretty um, pretty critical of his book Why Why Liberalism Failed, uh, mainly because I mean there are lots of reasons, but I think that uh, you know what he calls liberalism, I, I at least in the twentieth century, I don't see as being the inevitable byproduct of the liberalism as represented by someone like Locke, for example. right. And I, you know, I just, I I find that, uh, you know, there are a lot of different problems with, with, with that book um, where he's, you know, where he's criticizing sort of a classical liberalism to which, christians could adhere you know a, a classical liberalism that promotes peace and cooperation and collaboration and community and stewardship and ingenuity and dignity and humility and creativity and justice like these are these aren't you know these aren't elements of classical liberalism that are problematic and right they're, they I, I, they're a very different creature from what uh, may have emerged out of progressivism or what may have uh, whatever, whatever it is that our identity politics and wokeism and everything else, whatever those are, whatever tradition they come out of, cause they don't spring out of a vacuum, but whatever those are, I don't see being necessarily rooted in classical liberalism. Um, and you know, he, when he talks about, uh, antiquity, he, he celebrates antiquity that doesn't really seem to be like the reality. I mean, Sort of the uh, the Frederick Nietzsche, Ayn Rand obsession with uh, and Julius Evola, like the way they looked at the pagan elements of virtue was, you know, very anti-Christian. You know, they, sure. They, so um, you know, I I I just I, I wasn't a big fan of that book. I'm sure Deneen is a fine man and a good person, and I don't mean to uh, to mean to mean him personally in any way, but uh, I was not very keen on that particular book. And, uh, you know, some of these debates that are going on about originalism and integralism, I'm just not following all that closely. You know, I tend to think that it's sort of a pipe dream to believe that, I mean, Catholics are a very small uh, percentage of the American population. And to think that at some level, Catholics are in a broader sense, traditionalists, conservatives, whatever. Are going to be able to uh, wrestle control of the federal government and use it to institute our values and and beliefs in some sort of operative govern governing way is, I think, fantastical. <laughs> I just I just don't see it being very realistic. Well, you
0: you talk about in your essay on Kirk, you you, you actually talk a, a good amount about sort of Kirk's understanding of the U.S. as a a Christian nation, and uh, and I guess in the sense that it is, and in the sense that it isn't. Um, that it is certainly informed by it and that the founders were by and large, and and referencing Bradford on this, Mm -hmm. the founders by and large were um Orthodox adherents to established churches. Uh I mean and I don't mean established in the sense of legally established. Sure, sure. um, Um and and yet at the same time, you know, we're we're not um while we have that sort of Christian framework, uh, the legal framework that grew out of of Christian societies, and we have a Christian moral framework historically, at the same time, there are limitations necessarily on a secular state being able to operate um, in, I guess, an explicitly Christian way. If that makes sense.
1: No, that makes that 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 makes a, a lot of sense to me, and there. You know, something I personally believe is that conflict is inevitable. Disagreement is inevitable. We're never on this planet full of imperfect human beings with fallible minds and sinful natures ever going to achieve total consensus or perfect harmony. So what I like to promote is figuring out how to keep that conflict, keep that disagreement at the level of discourse and rhetoric rather than physical violence. And that at some level is going to require accommodation. It means that, you know, I can't seek to weaponize government against my quote unquote enemies or against people who disagree with me and they have to sort of sign on to the same truce and agree not to do the same thing. And I think what we're getting now is the opposite. I think the, the part of it is with the growth of the administrative state, the growth of the federal government, the centralization of power, the stakes are just so high that neither side can afford to lose Neither side is willing to risk what will happen if the other side gets control of that massive, powerful apparatus and tries to use it against us. They'll destroy us, and it's like two people fighting over the control to a nuclear bomb or something. You know, it's like you 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 you're not going to use it if you you know if it gets on your side. You don't want to press the button, but you really don't trust the other side not to press the button either. So it's worth fighting fighting to the death to see who controls it, because both sides want to weaponize it against the other. And I just, you know, I, I find that it's in an unsustainable, uh, an unsustainable condition at this point. At some point, something's got to give. Uh, and, you know, I hate to see what's going on in Ukraine right now. I'm not a foreign policy expert. I do not purport to understand all the nuances of, of you know, Russia's interest in Ukrainian history and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you you know, I see secession movements going on around the globe. I just, I I think that we are in a state of flux that we have not been in in a long time. And I know everyone, every generation says that, but this time it seems to be real. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it really seems as though there's a fundamental shift going on. And, you know, it may be that the nation state model as we know it, which we sort of take as, oh, this is the way things are, but... You know, if you see like the Treaty of Westphalia as like the beginning of the nation state, like you realize it hadn't been around but, but a few centuries, and we may start to see different political arrangements. You know, that t- discussion earlier about consent procedures and federal largesse, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, it would make it impossible for states like, you know, Alabama, who are so dependent on federal money to, be breakaway states, but you could see if they partnered with Texas or whatever. And I know this is getting way off subject, but, (laughs) but, but, you know, I, 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 I suspect that in my children's lifetime, we'll see some disruptions and some changes of boundaries and borders. I mean, if you look at one of those time warp things, maps of Europe that just goes from over the centuries and it shows the borders, you see, they, they, they grow, they shrink, they change, they do this, they change names. And you know, they spring out of whole cloth. Sometimes. Yeah, they so. <laughs> do. And you know, for me, there's no sort of, you know, biblical mandate that the United States of America is going to exist one day and it's going to consist of 50 states and they will look like this and they will always and everywhere for, forevermore be that way. You know, I don't, you know, so so at some point things are going to change. And I just feel that we, we are sensing some cultural shifts that are uh, so intense and where there is so little room for middle ground and, and agreement that eventually, and I, you know, I don't say this with pleasure, but eventually, you know, there's going to have to be peaceful separation.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that, that our current generation uh, suffers from, I guess, presentism, you know. yes. In a, uh, a great to a greater degree than generations in the past. You know, we were talking about uh, social media and the Internet and so forth, and we have access to all of this instant information. And you and I can see we can hop on Twitter right now and see photos from the latest bombing of, of Ukraine that happened maybe minutes ago or or maybe mm-hmm. watch a live stream of, you know, this these sort of uh, grand events and horrific events, things that we never you know we might have heard about weeks or months later in the past yeah but but we we become so obsessed with the issue of the moment as a society that um that that we have lost perspective and of course that's that's a way uh and the importance of somebody like a kirk who who was absolutely not caught up in the moment right (laughs) and was was uh he took the long view he very much did and um you know you were talking about sort of this hostility that we have, um, uh, that that we're seeing politically and and societally, culturally. Um, I think a, a lot of that is answered by kind of Kirk's Kirk's understanding of conservatism, which you touch on in your review of of Berzer's biography, which is that that Kirk's idea of conservatism is not. Uh, is not so much a list of principles, although, you know, as you referenced, he does have his sort of uh, core conservative principles, but it's more of a mindset and a way of thinking. And that is necessary because we are limited by how much we can know. So a lot of the friction that we see, maybe even on the Mm -hmm. right, is a result simply of, our own human failings. Like you said, we're never going to have complete harmony and agreement. And that's not because some, you know, people who disagree with me are bad. It may be because they're apprehending a truth that I'm not apprehending and I'm apprehending one they're not apprehending. Right. And, um, and we're, we're not, you know, we're necessarily going to see these things differently. And I think that that kind of humility, which Kirk advocates for is, is very much a, a necessity in in bringing about that kind of cultural and societal cohesion that that we're lacking right now.
1: No, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. And you know, I I see people like I don't know if you know Alex Salter, but uh, he he's a very traditionalist, he's a, a Greek Orthodox and uh, I you know, I see people like him trying to trying to find a middle ground between the Vermeules, for example, and say some free market economists and trying to show that, like, you can have common good conservatism and embrace markets that markets aren't all about mechanistic sort of profit maximization and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but in that case, and the only reason I bring that up is I, I, I see Alex as somebody who's able to see truths on both sides and to apprehend truths on both sides that, you know, the other side is not seeing of each other as they sort of, um, uh, I guess, present cartoon versions of, the, of each other and caricatures right. of each other.
0: Well, uh, I wanted to touch uh, on on one other essay that you wrote uh, before we end because I know that this has particular relevance right now you have an appreciation in your book uh, about uh, the influence of of Paul cantor on you and of course he uh, the time of this recording yeah, yeah. The time this recording just passed away and uh, uh, i would if you could talk a little bit about him and your uh your connection with him and uh, and what what he's what his work has meant.
1: Well, Paul was a really really neat person and just incredibly intelligent person. The last time I saw him was at a Liberty Fund colloquium and it was right before the pandemic, and we did it on Greek tragedy and you know discussed Aeschylus, the Oresteia, among many other texts and had a great time there. He gave me a ride back in the the, the taxi and uh, we talked about my novel, which I had just finished at the time. And it hasn't come out yet. It actually is either going to come out this year or next year, but he was really intrigued by it. And I'm disappointed that he won't ever get to read it. But um, Paul and I started corresponding many, many years ago. Uh, Well, I mean, gosh, probably 15 years ago. I can't can't even pinpoint when it was, but uh, we started emailing and then we met at an Austrian scholars conference at the Mises Institute, which is right here in Auburn. And I'm involved right. with the Mises Institute. And uh, he was just such a, a nice person. And I didn't know we, we we didn't plan to meet. We just bumped into each other. And it was sort of like, oh, here's the person. Here's the person I've been emailing with for so long. And Paul was really encouraging to me. And when I was trying to decide where to do my Ph.D. in English, of course, I had all these family ties to Auburn that I'd mentioned earlier and he wanted me to go up to UVA and study under him, but I just couldn't. I was living in Atlanta, working in Atlanta, and uh, was um, married at the time. I've actually recently gone through a a divorce. I'm sorry to report, but uh, there was just it just was not in the cards to to move up to UVA. But he had he had a student, a former student, excuse me, who was on faculty at Auburn and. He said, look, if you want to write about Austrian economics and literature, we could still do it. And we could use my former student to direct the dissertation. I could still sit on it. And we devised this great plan and it was going to work out. And we were so excited about it. But then when you get into the coursework and you get into your studies, you start realizing that uh, maybe getting a PhD isn't always about realizing your hopes and dreams. A lot of it is about just getting it done. <laughs> like right. you, you just got to get something done. And uh, and I happened to write my dissertation on Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. And uh, that ended up being a book. It was my, I guess, my second book. I wrote my first book while I was in graduate school. And it kind of caused a little bit of a problem for me because I was so critical of English professors. And I was <laughs> getting a PhD in English. And my then dissertation advisor got a hold of it, and as well as an interview I did with Jeffrey Tucker that for some reason she did not like. And uh, we just were unable to get along after that. I had to get a new dissertation advisor. Oh no. Yeah. I had to get a whole new dissertation advisor. And I spent two years with one dissertation advisor with no chapters approved whatsoever, no progress and no access to my other committee members. And then when I changed dissertation advisors, six months later, dissertation was done, all chapters approved, all committee members on board. And so it was a, uh, it was a rough, it was a rough process, but at any rate, Paul was always a mentor to me, was uh, a remarkable person, a very nice man, and incredibly knowledgeable. And I'm very sad to see him go talking about people who are able to bridge divides. I mean, Paul could go to the uh, Claremont Institute and be among Straussians and then come to the Mises Institute and be among Austrian economists and be perfectly home at both places. And that may not seem as unusual in today's world now that you know, sort sort of the Mises and the Claremont crowd are on the same page about so many cultural things. But back in those days, oh, yeah, when man. when you had the neo, it was more of the Iraq War foreign policy days, and you had the neo, it was more of a neocon paleocon right. split. I mean, in those days, that was a very unusual thing oh, to be absolutely. able to do. It's it's amazing how much uh, transformation there has been since then. Um, I mean, I think about even the National Review back in 2015 or 16, I guess it was 15 in the presidential primaries when they came out with that whole issue that was against Trump and and Trumpism. And then you had a bunch of Claremont people going after National Review. And I thought, wow, we're seeing some fracture in the conservative (laughs) movement. This is a very different movement than it was a decade ago. And we're still seeing that. I think a lot of the Philadelphia Society meetings lately have been pushing on those tensions and trying to figure out you know, whether there's a place for fusionism or what, you know, what right. disparate elements of the right still have in common.
0: Well, you know, talking about, I guess, presentism, um, and you talk about this some in your book and we, and we probably don't have time to explore it in depth uh, at this point today, but, um, you know, you talk about Buckley and kind of bringing conservatism together and so forth. And, and there was a sense in which some of that was kind of held together um, by National Review and sort of B- Buckley's personality, and then of course Reaganism came along. Since then, since the 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 breakup uh, of of the old Soviet Union uh, and and the end of the Cold War, uh, the, at least the last one, uh, <laughs> that uh, the the right has been more fractured, and I think we are seeing kind of in some ways a return to maybe kind of pre national review day, sort of those old, right. And, and, but, but those are very fluid things, like you're saying, it's not, I, I don't think things are settled. Um, and certainly, um, uh, the, uh, the, you know, and of course, in my, my point of view, the, the, the Kirkian mindset is kind of the way out of that. Um, mm. but not, but, but, but once again, not everybody agrees with that. <laughs> so, um, so we will see, but I think you're absolutely right. We're certainly seeing uh, interaction uh, from the, from Claremont and, and a lot of the Straussians, uh in ways that, in you know, the 1990s, even you you wouldn't have possibly imagined.
1: Right. No, I I think that's exactly right, and I think I I think you're right about the Kirkian view, but I'm not sure that in our moment we are equipped for that type of approach because I just I don't see that many people saying, oh, the world's in crisis. Let me start studying history. <laughs> like, <you know laughs> what I mean? people, people are acting before they're actually learning. And the first thing you do is got to act, got to act, got to act. You know, we train our students to be activists these days and everyone's got to go out and champion a cause. Well, they're 20 years old. I mean, they don't know anything right. yet. Like how right. do you champion it's, a cause when you right. don't know anything yet? Like you got to learn something before you can champion it. And, uh, and and so much of our education is, is really tendent, tendentious in the sense that we're trying to inculcate particular values or we're trying to brainwash or, uh, uh, or you know teach students what it is they're supposed to think. You're supposed to think this and go out and change the world in this way. And both sides, and I shouldn't say both as if it's this binarized thing, but you know, multiple sides, multiple uh, forms of pedagogy and different types of teachers are doing this. And really, I, I I just, I don't want to end on a note of despair, but I started, <laughs> but it, sometimes it really is, it really is tough to see your way out. But, you know, we were talking about social media earlier. I'm reading this book by uh, Jakob uh, Mashangama, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, Jakob Mashangama, but it's on free speech. And it struck me as I was reading about his description of the printing press and about how, you know, Luther's ideas spread rapidly in the printing press and people were panicked and everyone thought the world was going to hell in a handbasket. And, uh, and certainly Luther's ideas took forms and manifested themselves in ways that were far beyond his anticipation, but we got through all that. I mean, you know, of course the church is, is, is very splintered, uh, obviously, but, uh, but, you know what seemed to be armageddon what seemed to be just the end of the world the most disruptive thing that anyone had ever seen eventually we came the we came to terms with that technology it was a massive technological dip disruption but we adapted and we figured out how to do constructive things. And now it's not really controversial to print books. In fact, I love that we right. print books. But uh, so it may well, just be- Well, yeah,
0: I can certainly endorse that. Yeah,
1: yeah. It may just be that we're so new to the social media that we just haven't figured out how to handle it yet. We're just, you right. know, we just haven't gotten used to it. and We're just all very immature with it, but eventually we'll settle into a, a way of working with it and we'll get used to it. And uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe it'll be totally different from what I expected. We'll have no privacy anymore and everyone will know everything about everybody and we'll just be, <laughs> I, I don't know, I don't know. But, um, but that's the, that's the great thing about, you know, studying history is you don't have to be, you can you be pretty sure you're not a prophet. You don't have to make predictions or forecasts. You just sort of, you can sit back and take the long view and that does give you a, a chance not to panic.
0: Right, these these things will work themselves out. I mean, obviously, we we can never foresee what's going to happen, but at the same time, we can't get caught up in the idea that what now exists must always exist because it hasn't really existed for that long in yes. historical terms. And um, and um, and the conservative ought to uh, ought to understand that. So um, I appreciate alan mendenhall you being on cultural debris and the book is shouting softly um and uh that is available from amazon and other outlets i assume
1: that's right yeah it's on you know just google alan mendenhall shouting software you can find it's probably in things i don't even know about
0: and I will have a link to that uh, in show notes so people can just click on that and find it. Uh, I appreciate you being on and enjoy that lovely Alabama spring.
1: Oh, it is such a beautiful day. I can't wait to get out in there and Maybe, maybe even hit some golf balls this afternoon.
0: Oh, it sounds like fun. Wear some seersucker, <laughs> some seersucker shorts for it, maybe. That sounds great. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Alan. Thank
1: you.